At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. Because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Maiden voyage here for the Hollinger and Duncan NBA show. Uh, I'm Nate Duncan, joined by John Hollinger, fresh off a, a seven-year stint with the Memphis Grizzlies. You probably already listened to our trailer, so we don't need to tell you why you should listen to the show. We're going to show you right now by having some awesome NBA discussion and, and where John and I wanted to start here is uh, first by him saying hello. <laughs> What's up, Nate? This is, this is very excited. Uh, but uh, and then secondly, uh, he's been all over the world scouting for the last seven years. We've seen some of these rookies now in preseason. And so we want to talk about just some thoughts on some of the rookies that John has a, a specific opinion about, uh, and uh, I've got some as well to chime in, maybe see where our opinions differ from some of the consensus uh, that's out there. So uh, who's really stuck out to you? Who do you want to talk about first? Uh, the the guy who really sticks out to me, I mean, I'm going to stay away from the Captain Obvious category, so I'm not going to talk about Zion Williamson right now, uh, but I will talk about a New Orleans Pelican, and that's Nikhil Alexander-Walker, because I never understood why he slipped as far as he did in the draft when there were so many question marks about this class, and he didn't have that sexy ceiling of some of these other guys. He doesn't have freakish athletic pop. He doesn't make plays above the rim. He doesn't have super duper explosive uh, burst off the off the dribble. But if you go through and check the boxes for what you want in an NBA guard, uh, does he have size? Yes. Does he have length? Yes. Can he handle the ball? Yes. Can he pass? Yes. He's actually a great passer, especially with his left hand. Yeah, Can he so shoot? Good. Yes. Can he defend the position? Yes. There was like zero chance that this guy was going to fail, right? And in a, in a draft with so many question marks and at a position where the league really struggles to find quality, um, I, I just couldn't believe that this guy wasn't a lottery pick given those parameters. I was a big fan of his, uh, even though he made a horrible school choice and should have gone to Virginia and not Virginia Tech. Um, <laughs> Clearly, uh, he'd be, he'd be a much wiser man for it right yeah, now. Yeah, of course. he, he could if he if he'd gone to Virginia, he could have had all of his uh, per game stats reduced by about thirty three percent by by the slow pace. He really screwed up by not going there. He'd have he'd have a ring too, Nate, or, or whatever they give you for winning in the NCA. Crack. <laughs> well, we we can be assured it's nothing of any monetary value. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, John. John, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, went to Virginia, by the way. And uh, sadly, I, I'm uh, I'm insulated from any sort of jokes at my school's expense at Tulane because I think we were like two and eighteen in conference last year or something like that. It might we might have even been like zero and eighteen. So, uh, but Mike Dunleavy uh, 
did not exactly cover the school in glory after leaving the Clippers. But uh, but anyway, back to Nikita. Oh, I didn't know that. Wait, wait, I didn't know this. You didn't ask me. You know, I saw Melvin Frazier play the other day, and and you didn't even ask me for a scouting report. This is the, I didn't I didn't realize this. I'm uh, I, I'm well aware of the scouting report. I'm Melvin. Okay, but but back to Nikhil, um, and I think it's fitting that he's like the first person that we're ever discussing uh, on this show too. But uh, I would totally agree with you. I mean, I, I fell in love with him back when he almost single handedly engineered an upset of USA for Canada in the U uh, eighteen tournament of the Americas. He looked great at the Hoop Summit. But the thing that is so interesting to me, I mean, you said, you know, he's not a sexy pick. And I agreed with you, right? I thought, you know, 3 and D, could a little ball handling ability, but more he can shoot it. He competes. He's a smart player, good character. But what's really surprised me about him is he's really like, he's got some magic with the ball in his hands and some confidence. I mean, we saw it in Summer League, these step back threes, some of, some of the flair he's that- been passing with. You that know, step yeah. back three was a new was a new thing. I saw yeah, when I saw I him do that in you. summer yeah. league. I, I about fell out of my chair because he did not show that at Virginia right. Tech in any of the games I saw. Right, uh, that's you know, what that, that's that what big I was side stepped into the three pointer. That was like, whoa, okay, where'd this come from? Yeah, yeah, because I mean, I, I thought of him as more kind of like a caretaker. In fact, the the book was that he had struggled when he had to play point guard. And he looks like really a pure point guard, and just the amount of flair and confidence that he's playing with uh, has been a revelation uh, for me, just from an aesthetic standpoint as well. But so, I mean, I, I, to talk about this year though, is he going to play? It's going to be hard, uh, but I think he's going to get in there. I mean, New Orleans has a lot of guards, and they have a good team, both of which will work against him. But I just can't imagine keeping him off the floor so that I could play Etwan Moore or Frank Jackson. Like, I just, that that would be my, I've seen NBA teams do stuff like this, so I know that it's possible, but it would still boggle my mind if it actually happened. Yeah, I mean, it, it happens a lot, and maybe there's a feeling like, oh, the season is starting. I mean, he started preseason uh, well behind those guys not even playing until the second half it seems like he's looked so good and even drew holiday was it's always interesting to hear in camp and we're going to talk later about some of these roster decisions at the end of the the roster uh but to see who are the veterans kind of praising and not praising and drew made sure to say oh frank's been pretty good but oh Nikhil alexander walker might be my favorite guy on the team and so yeah it's yeah. always interesting when the players start lobbying for someone like that yeah, and that I mean that's a thing that definitely happens. Veteran players will start lobbying for certain guys, uh, especially if there's a roster situation. It's really interesting how that played out on on the inside in a couple of situations uh, we we were in. Uh, so that that's that's a did, piece did of it. You listen but to then um, I would say we took their input into account, but we. Uh, probably went in the direction we were going to go anyway uh on, <laughs> on, on those decisions but um yeah, well, it, well, it is guess, it is interesting yeah. i always tried to listen to them especially the players that i knew were higher iq because the one thing we couldn't replicate in the front office was the experience of being on the court with those guys um uh, so a lot of times they could tell you right away this guy knows how to play this guy doesn't know how to play off a very small sample of possessions just because they could because they were out there in the mix with them, they could just feel things that we couldn't feel or see. So would that be like, oh, the guy's missing defensive assignments. He doesn't know where to be. Uh, or is it like this guy was guarding me and he just couldn't stop me? I, he had no chance against me. Like, like, do, would they ever be specific about the kind of comments? They they would just intuit how a guy feels and reads the game very quickly, um, especially a couple of our veteran players. Um, they, they could just figure it out almost immediately. Like, that, they'd just be like, well, that guy doesn't know how to play. And it'd be like, what do you mean? What do you mean? And they'd be, well— 
there was this situation that he did this and that was ridiculous. And <laughs> it was, and it would be hard. Like, even if you'd have to watch, even watch it back a couple times, maybe the practice film and be like, oh yeah, <laughs> I guess he had a point there. Um, so that, that, and that was really interesting to me because, because of how quickly they would, they would catch on to how well certain players could think or not think the game. Were, were um, they ever wrong ultimately, or, or were they actually seeing it before you guys could? I think they were seeing it before we could most of the time. Um, but the, obviously they were seeing a static point in time though, as opposed yeah. to a progression of where a player might end up. And, th- and that was where, you know, that was where our expertise had to come in, having seen the guys, you know, progress through college or Europe or whatever and, and to the point they were and, and try to ascertain where they were heading. Because that's that's what you really do. I mean, the NBA in the front office, you're essentially working in a futures market, right? So you're yeah. trying to yeah. Part of that is evaluating what what a player can do right now, but the biggest part is evaluating what is the player going to do for the time period you have him under contract. Yeah, and I think like players and coaches, maybe players even more than coaches, are, are so focused on the now or focused on what a guy did last year. I mean, it definitely seems like just anecdotally looking at it from afar that most of the situations where it's like, oh yeah, the players really wanted this guy on the team. Like it doesn't really seem to work out that well. Uh, yeah, I would say that is, that is true. Um, all right. Well, we've got, uh, the rest of our lives to, to get into these kind of stories. So I, but I agree the, with you yeah, on Nikhil. The, yeah, go ahead. There is one point here though on Nikhil Alexander Walker, because one of the tools a front office has at its disposal is to shape the roster in such a way that it's unavoidable to play a certain player. Um, in other words, if, if you don't like the fact that Frank Jackson is taking his minutes, you do have the option of trading Frank Jackson or, or, doing something else with Frank Jackson. If um, you don't, you, you know, the, those are one of the, that is a resource you have at your disposal on the front office side. It's not something that you should use cavalierly, but in certain situations, uh, it could be a tool that you feel the need to use. Uh, as you said, uh, it is unavoidable. I, I had this view of you sitting in front of JB Bickerstaff at the start of last year, wearing like the emperor's robes from a uh, return of the jedi and saying it is unavoidable it is your destiny you will play dylan brooks this year (laughs) Uh, dylan unfortunately uh set the uh world record for freak injuries in one season um i mean the play where he stepped on the basketball like you couldn't do that a million times in a million Odom did that once actually and sprained his ankle like back in uh back like 15 years ago i think well now you've ruined my entire premise (laughs) <laughs> because it's two in a million now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I thought you're you're supposed to be the numbers yeah, I'm guy. I'm supposed to be the numbers guy. I was off by a factor of 100%. <laughs> uh, all right. So, uh, yeah, N- Nikhil, I mean, uh, I, I agree. I think he's going to be good. You know, we'll see. I mean, sometimes there are guys who just uh, have this start that looks re- really good and look great in preseason when nobody's trying. And, you know, you do wonder about whether he can be efficient because he's not amazing getting to the basket. And they also have these other on ball guys uh, he still is a little slight but yeah i mean i love him as a, a long-term prospect and i think you know he, certainly to me i would rather play him uh especially considering new orleans future than josh hart or uh etuan more at this point even though i you know I, that's not to disrespect those guys i think those guys are actually underrated players perhaps uh, in their own right at times um so john morant is someone that i think you know he's the number two overall pick right i mean he was yeah. known for his highlights at murray state i mean i think this guy 
from what I've seen from in the preseason against like the one game against actual NBA competition, they haven't had uh, the hardest schedule in the world. And he sat out against OKC last night, but I think he's already the best offensive player on the Grizzlies. I think that they, he actually is really going to help them granted from a low floor. They don't have a ton of offensive talent on the team right now, but like that guy is just magic. Like I think people are just not seeing what, a special ball handler and passer he is like to the point where i'd put him maybe above just about any point guard prospect i've seen in the last like 10 years in those regards do you agree with me or or do you not see him quite that way so i i probably agree with you i mean i i the it's hard because i'm so close to it like I, it's yeah. hard for me to pull myself away from it i mean obviously you see some of these passes he makes he makes them with either hand and scouting murray state last year um you know when you watch them in person you really realized how bad the rest of that team was and how yeah. much john morant was carrying that offense and making these other guys look a lot better than they were and when when you saw like against Belmont when he hurt his ankle, just him being out for two minutes, it was virtually impossible for them to score against a, a fringe NCAA tournament team. Like they had they had no chance at all. And uh, and even you know Ja was playing on a bad ankle the rest of the game, and so they they lost or whatever. But just having him out there to make those reads and those and those plays just opened so many other things up that weren't ever going to be there otherwise. Um, and the the other thing that I think has really impressed me is that even in the first half of last season, he he would make those wow passes, but he was pretty wild too. And yeah. he's really toned a lot of that down, it seems to me, and gotten a lot more control over his, uh, his decision-making and sort of that fine-tuning of, okay, this has a 20% chance to be amazing and a 40% chance to end up in the eighth <laughs> row. So maybe I won't throw this pass, you know? So uh, I, I I was impressed with, with that. And we'll see if that degree of control uh, is able to uh, follow him into the season or not, because obviously they played uh, two garbage teams, those first two games and have only, he's only played one kind of real exhibition game. Yeah. And they also played against Charlotte in that game. Uh, although Charlotte's and, and they lost by 90. So <laughs> I mean, Charlotte was good for <laughs> yeah. whatever reason. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, and they also don't have limited other threats on the team as well. So he's going to have to create a, a lot. Of, I mean, I, I could see him being up in the, the league leaders in turnover percentage among some of the high usage guards. Um, but who else sticks out to you from this class, uh, either for good or for ill, uh, that might be different than what kind of the, uh, national expectations are for him? Well, I have an information advantage on this guy. So I want to talk about Goga Bitadze. Uh, player I've seen uh, overseas a couple of times. Uh, th- thought he went a little low. Thought he probably should have been the uh, first international player selected. Uh, not counting Rui Hachimura as an international player. Since so you, you like him better than uh, you liked him better than Siku? Uh, yes. Yeah. I when it, when I watch Goga play, uh, the things one of the things you're looking at when you scout is not just strengths and weaknesses, but how fixable are the weaknesses and how prominent are are the strengths and how much of a factor can the can the strengths be in an NBA game? You look at a seven footer with with three point shooting ability, uh decent bounciness, not not amazing, not gonna be poster dunking guys, but good 
good enough. And then you look, okay, what are his, what are his weaknesses? Well, his weaknesses are things like strength, uh, you know, uh, low, lower body leverage. Uh, a lot of times he can get, he can get beasted inside. Those things are all fixable as guys get older, their bodies develop. You get him an NBA strength program. Uh, you, you, you maybe wish his hands were a little bit better, but it's, you're really nitpicking there. Uh, he's not a freak athlete, but a lot of seven footers aren't in, in this league. If you're skilled and you know how to play and you're, you, you're usually going to have a chance. And then the other thing that stands out about him, he has a passion for the game. He's not somebody who just plays cause he's tall. And I've always felt with guys like that, when they, when, when they have that drive within them and they're big and they're skilled, the fail rate is going to be really low on guys like that. So I was encouraged to see he finally played in his first preseason game uh, yesterday. I didn't watch the game, so he had pretty good numbers. But I like him. I do think he's going to need to spend some time bulking up. Uh, before he can really handle the physicality of, of playing every day in the NBA. I wouldn't su- be surprised to see him in Fort Wayne a lot, but I think he's a pretty good long-term prospect. Now, it's a little different these days because you're talking about in an NBA draft and you're picking a five. Well, yeah. one of the reasons he slipped probably is just because the league has devalued fives so much, but I think he's a good player uh, with with the right background to develop all the talent he has yeah i mean i was kind of like eh, he's a center they already have a bunch of centers what are they doing you know i mean obviously again though like you pick you pick someone at 18 and he's a rotation player like you probably did pretty good there right like, i mean that that's what it boils down to regardless of what position they play and i don't know that there's anyone incredibly sexy that that was going to change their destiny behind them I mean, we'll see if like thibel or clark or or yeah Grant williams i guess yeah i mean those it, those guys would be their road not taken right yeah yeah but and also i mean if you just you can always play the game oh they picked this guy at 18 and there's three guys who went in the next 10 picks that were better than him i mean to say yeah we're gonna pick the absolute best guy yeah. on the board at 18 that, that, everyone so, remains. thank you thank you that thing always bothered me um and it bothered me more when i got on the front office side obviously but when people said well this pick after you turned it turned out to be awesome well yeah if you the entire field is probably going to outperform our pick right i, I can't that, think of a i can't think of a situation where memphis took a player and then someone else was picked right afterwards and the media was uh w- was killing you guys for uh for picking that player afterwards it you know what's so funny it doesn't come to that doesn't come to mind and it it, it wasn't it wasn't nikola Jokic. it was the other pick that 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 is that is the thing that will never stop killing me yeah, that, that they're killing you guys for Rodney The Hood, thing that I beat uh, my head against the wall over for the last five years is that we took Jarnell Stokes over Nikola Jokic. And, uh, you know, that that maybe, you know, what could I have done? Uh, should should I have, uh, you know, evaluated things differently or pushed things in a different direction? What, you know... What could what could have happened differently to make that not our our pick? <laughs> you know that because that is the yeah. one move that I think would have potentially changed things a lot. All the other stuff probably would have led to roughly the same place. Yeah. And well, well, if it makes you feel better, I was saying the same thing about Jokic. I'm like, how does he have the athleticism to survive? On oh, the everybody had the question. People that people yeah. didn't know of it. People were questioning his passion for the game. People were questioning his conditioning. Um, yeah. But I, I got to say, I, he had a disappointing hoop summit. But I went out to Serbia to scout him uh, between the hoop summit and the draft. Man, man, he was like he was doing stuff that that he does with the. 
with the Nuggets now. Like I just beat my head over this every day. He pulled up from half court and just shot a jump shot and drew nothing but net at the end of a half one game. Yeah. I was like, did I did I just see that? <laughs> did I just see this seven foot, probably like two hundred eighty five pound guy at the time, uh, just just pull up and rain one like that? Um, so in in retrospect, like I beat my head against the wall over that more than anything that probably happened in the entire time I was there because because yeah, that because uh, that was the real potential difference making move. Yeah, well, and also I mean you guys had uh, this dude Marcus Gasol, right? <laughs> like it, it was, uh, and now a second round pick isn't necessarily going to change things if, in terms of like draft. Yeah, I mean it didn't stop but, us yeah. from drafting a five every other year. So I mean I should have, <laughs> yeah, you know, it probably probably uh, that that would have been the one to pick. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and like, I, I was in the same boat as you, like last year or something, like someone who works for like the Denver Nuggets, uh, social team combed through my evaluation of Jokic of basketball insiders after that hoop summit. And it was like, and quoted it and like, you know, tried to make it look out like an idiot. I'm like, uh, calm down. You, you guys took him 40. Like, <laughs> you know, you, you, you didn't think he was going to be this good. You I believe they took he, he multiple players yeah. before him. If I, if I remember right from that draft, well, yeah. they definitely took Gary Harris before him. I'm, I'm trying to remember if they took someone else in there too. Oh yeah. No, uh, Nurkic too. Yeah. That would have been the 16 and 19 Nurkic. Yeah. And then they didn't even bring him over for a year or two, right? He was, it wasn't his rookie year, 2015. So. That is correct. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, anyway, I mean, and, you know, the Warriors took Harrison Barnes and Festus Azili before Draymond Green, too. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of those instances. Uh, so you're, you're uh, you're never going to bat even 800, not to mention, uh, a, a thousand. So anyway, uh, now that we're 23 minutes in and we've discussed three players, uh, <laughs> would you, would you like who should to be the fourth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is a lot of pressure here. You get you got to find one one other person. Uh this is our last chance. Like a this, uh, well, this well, is Well, let me ask you this. Who who do you think is uh is a little overrated in this class? A little overrated in this class. As far as yeah. where they went in terms of uh in the draft. Yeah. You know, I mean, Cameron Johnson is the easy one, right? Yeah. That that's that might be a little too fish in a barrel for our audience. Um No, the, I, the, I don't know. I mean, he's like if he he's can, six he nine can, and he can shoot, though, he can like, shoot. He's not, like so he's twenty three. Yeah. Like he was a backup at Pitt when when the, you know all these other guys who came out in the lottery or nineteen twenty and and were among the best players in their college teams. And Cameron Johnson, when he was their age, was was a backup at Pitt, right? Yeah, and uh, not not Duke, you know, Pitt, <laughs> and uh, and yeah. Well, uh, that's there, what got him drafted. Uh, there there was some. There were some questions about his um, his his hip, uh, which I we we on this side do not have access to that medical information that they get out of the combine, but there were definitely uh, murmurs about that. Uh, I also think his senior year uh, or his fifth year actually was probably a little bit of an outlier from a shooting perspective. Like he can shoot, but is he really a forty five percent three point shooter? Like he, had he ever shown that capability before? Uh, so I, I question, I question that. And I, I just think there was still high level talent on the board. The, even if you, you, you know, obviously I talked about Nikhil Alexander Walker, but like PJ Washington, Tyler Harrow, like those guys are going to be good players. And those, those are the two picks right after him. I, I would feel much better if I'm Phoenix, if I had one of those two guys. Well, I don't know if you heard, they're taking a big step forward this year though. I, I mean, and that's really, I don't know that Johnson is going to be bad. I mean, six, nine, if his, if he's really got the jump shot and he could be, you know, even remotely passable defensively, like he actually could be a decent player. But to me, so much of these draft picks and people are like, Oh, well, why do you overvalue these first round picks? Like most of them don't work out for me. It's more about just, well, 
you at least have some chance of getting a guy who's really going to be a difference maker for your franchise. And I, I, even if Johnson becomes a decent player, I'd be hard pressed to believe he could be a difference maker. I wish they would have focused on someone who could have been a, a talent that could really yeah, be a major there, there's part. There's zero star equity there. You're, you're not getting yeah. a Devin Booker out of this pick. Yeah. But, although I think a lot of people would have said that you're not getting a Devin Booker out of the Devin Booker pick. Either but, yeah, but Booker at least was, to, yeah, to he contrast, was, he was, I believe, the youngest player in that draft. That's right. Yeah. And came from a place where it's known that a lot of guys don't get to show everything they can do while they're at Kentucky. All right. Uh, last guy I want to talk about here, uh, Jarrett Culver. He's the guy that I was a little mystified with. You know, there is this kind of morass of wing prospects. Uh, and I, I had him towards the lower end of that group. I mean, I think his ball handling looked good, but I wasn't really buying his jump shot in college. He really lacks explosion getting to the basket. And I thought that defensively he competes and he tries hard, but he kind of looked like he'd be more, you know, adequate than a difference maker on that end too. And so I was wondering why to take him at six for a Wolves team that, you know, in theory is not going to be drafting that high most of the time. Another pick where I just didn't really see the upside. Do you agree with me or, or did you like that pick for them there? I was a little bit in between the two poles on him, I think. He's a big wing who can handle the ball. So right away, uh, you know, bells start going off in your head that there's, that there's a chance here to be something that's hugely valuable. Uh, does defend. He, his jump shot is definitely, I think, the swing skill for him. When, when you watched him, it didn't look that broken or, or bad or anything but I, I it just it, it just broken, didn't actually it, i mean it, it definitely didn't go in the net a whole lot <laughs> so that's <laughs> like I, I thought he was like shooting on the way down he kind of mm-hmm. had a hitch in it uh, i mean you would probably know better than i do of like whether that particular flaw is fixable as opposed to you know the way lonzo ball shoots is fixable but to me i i thought this does this guy does not look like a shooter mm-hmm. to me from the and college then, line even and then you throw in the way he shot with like a big jump kind of shooting on the way down those are the types of guys to me that have more trouble translating out to the three-point line than the uh the guys who kind of shoot more of a set shot yeah and the 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 one thing with culver is that we hardly saw him shoot threes off the catch because so much of that offense was predicated on him creating now i can turn that around and say a lot of the real value for perimeter players in this league has become being able to shoot threes off the dribble uh which he didn't really demonstrate an ability to do very well. But as when you start talking into uh, different kinds of outcomes, can he be a secondary player? He needs to be able to shoot off the catch then. And we didn't really see any evidence for or against on that. We just, it just wasn't an outcome we saw that much. Yeah. And I mean, well, I think not seeing any evidence is a form of evidence in the other direction. I mean, that's you kind of think sometimes, all right, if somebody could be doing something, they would be doing it. I realize they had a lack of other threats on that team. But but no, there's a fair point there. Would they have run stuff for him off of pin downs or whatever if they had if they had any faith in his ability to shoot off the catch? I that's a fair point he's big and he can handle the ball and he'll i I don't know if he'll be great defensively but he won't get lit yeah it's interesting what you said about a big wing who can handle handle the ball and i think if you are and you know maybe can't shoot that well if you are really a top end guy i agree with you but i think that's actually something that teams can fall in love with a little bit too much like he actually seemed a little evan turnery to me and turner is kind of one of those same guys who not a ton of athleticism not a great judge i think his jumper will be better than turner's to be clear mm-hmm. uh but you know someone who has these ball handling skills but then you're like okay do we 
is this guy really good enough that we're going to run a lot of stuff through him like the nba is kind of very regimented offensively a lot of times to where you know you have the guys who are good and you have the guys who finish the plays that those guys set up for them and if you're not good enough to really draw the defense's help and set up plays for others and you can't finish plays either then you're really kind of stuck in limbo and that's somewhat of what i foresaw for him i think i think you make some good points about his uh his low-end outcomes i uh i'm I, i guess i'm a little more bullish on what he is and what he and what he can be uh but i wasn't pie in the sky over him either it was is it's yeah. interesting i'm really i guess i'm kind of neutral on him and i'm really interested yeah. to see how this uh how this plays out for him in minnesota and what direction he takes his career yeah and maybe you know if he learns to shoot that's the way that i'm going to be wrong right i mean that was that was my evaluation his jump shot did look better when i saw him uh, in person against the warriors in preseason all right let's take a quick break here and we'll get back talk about some of the teams that John and I disagree on going into the season. David Harrison here, the Locked on Washington football team podcast, celebrating with you a 21-grain salute to a less boring sandwich thanks to Dave's Killer Bread. I don't know about you guys, but when I eat pizza, I eat it for the toppings, not the crust. And when I eat a sandwich, it's for what's inside the bread, not for the bread. But when I throw a sandwich on 21 whole grains and seeds, thin sliced bread from Dave's Killer Bread, it is the epitome of addition by subtraction. That thin sliced bread lets me focus on what's inside the sandwich, but also adds to the sandwich with killer taste, killer texture, killer nutrition, a subtle sweetness, and a seed-coated crust. Dave's Killer Bread is America's number one organic bread for a reason it tastes so stinking good dave's killer bread is made with the highest quality organic and non-gmo ingredients and is power packed with whole grains fiber and protein visit daveskillerbread.com to learn more and look for dave's killer bread in the bread aisle of your local grocery store what's up sports fans matt peck here host of locked on bulls and i want to talk to you really quickly about another excellent podcast huge fan is a new serious xm original podcast where stars talk sports Each week, join host LaChina Robinson as she chats with your favorite celebs about childhood sports memories, game day rituals, the most heated rivalries, and more. And this new season features huge names like Anthony Ramos from In the Heights and Hamilton, Pat Carney from the Black Keys, Mel C, that's right, a.k.a. Sporty Spice from the Spice Girls, and even actress Michelle Williams talking about her love for our very own Chicago Bulls. Huge Fan is a fresh way to connect with your favorite artists, actors, and personalities about something we all understand, fandom. Huge Fan is now out on Pandora, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. All right, so I've been reading your fantastic season previews on The Athletic, also doing some really good mailbags that, that I've been enjoying as well. Uh, but we disagree on a number of teams, which is good. Your projections, I, I'm probably closer to the consensus on a lot of these in terms of like, you know, the Vegas over-under maybe than you are, which uh, I credit you for being uh, willing to go out more on a limb. But the team I want to start with is the Warriors. You had them at 51 and 31 in your projections. I have them at 45 wins. Their over-under was 48 and a half. So we're kind of splitting the difference in either direction on them. Uh, where I want to start with them is in something that you, your overall methodology for these projections was you put in a replacement level uh, for players on the idea that, as is true in 99% of all teams, if someone is just that bad, you can replace them with some freely available talent. The Warriors 
have so little flexibility that I think they could have multiple players that they're going to have to play who are not just replacement level, but below replacement level because they can't even like move guys who aren't working out. Or if someone gets injured, you got to play like Alan Smiley or something like he probably is worse than your replacement level, a guy out of the G league in, in a lot of cases. So it's, it, I, and that's only part of the point, but just the lack of depth on this team, I believe in Draymond Green. I believe in stuff, but that's like, it's kind of all they've got right now. Well, I so I look at it a little different. I to me, they're going to have four good players out there to start the game, right? You got Steph, Russell, Green, and either Cauley Stein or Looney, right? Yeah. I mean, Cauley Stein and Looney are not making the All Star game, but they're you know they're solid enough. You're you're going to have at least one pretty good big whoever whoever doesn't start among those two. Now, obviously, you're going to have some attrition during the year, and guys will miss games with injuries or whatnot, but. You still have most nights, probably, arguably the best offensive player in the league and arguably the best defensive player in the league. And I think the last couple of years were so easy for them that it was easy to forget how talented they could be when they were really locked in because they just didn't have to lock in that much. And you could see it. I mean, there were, there were so many games where they were, we're just clearly kind of waiting around for whatever comes, comes next, whether it's, you know, the, the, the playoffs, which we, when you're, it's hard when you're on a team that's that loaded and you kind of know in the back of your mind, you just have to kind of get to X number of wins and wait till the playoffs. And it's, and it's hard to dial up every night. And we saw that. I mean, we, we beat them in Memphis with teams that were massively less talented multiple times. And, yeah. uh, it was, and it was entirely contingent on what kind of mood they were in that night. You know what I mean? Like as, as proud as we were of our own team winning, we, we kind of knew that if they had really come to play, we probably wouldn't have. Yeah. So I, I, I see that. I mean, and, and I'm a huge believer in stuff. I think their offense is going to be really good. Draymond, I agree with you in the playoffs. I think he might be the best playoff defender within a system with other good defenders. On this team, you know, I'd probably rather have a Rudy Gobert type uh, or a Joel Embiid who can just hang back under the rim and at least control the paint, even if you're giving up stuff elsewhere. And I think that he is just when he's not in able to be in that switching system and they just don't have the personnel for that this year then a lot of his value ends up going away if he's not able to hide out on one of the weaker offensive threats and they have nobody else to guard a lot of these guys right uh then and he's got to actually just guard his man he can't be as impactful as a help defender so i think you know he obviously still really helps. He's also getting a little bit older. You know, he's been more effective in the postseason than the regular season in the last couple of years. Um, you know, maybe that's motivation. Maybe it's just he can't bring it for 82 games a year anymore um, and has some nagging injuries. So I, I, I'm really, really worried about their defense. What do you think they're going to rank in offense and defense? Like how, when you did that 51 win projection, what did you kind of have them at on either end? Uh, you, you know what? I didn't break down the, the 30 teams that way. Uh, yeah. so, so I can't definitively answer that question, yeah. well, but we'll definitely, take, take there's definitely yeah. more offensive value on this team than defensive value. I don't think that's in dispute. I mean, Steph alone raises your offensive floor to such a high level, uh, because you have to account for him in so many different ways so far from the basket that it just opens the floor to the point where everyone else is shooting the most wide open shots they've ever had in their life. Um, and so that, it, and then when you, when you add in, I mean, Russell, for whatever you think of him, 
is going to be able to take a lot of those possessions when Steph is out of the game, is going to be a threat to catch and shoot if you bring too much attention to Steph, um, and can be a, a threat on the, on the weak side. So you're really talking about needing to fill in one spot with something just mediocre, like just give us something, Alec Burks, Glenn Robinson, like please. Uh, and, and if they can do that, I think they're going to be fine. Yeah, I, I'm really worried about it starting the season with, you know, I, five nba rotation caliber players and two of them are, are centers which as you know is one of the more devalued positions unless you've really got like a top end guy there so uh yeah I, i'm really worried about it. i mean i think their offense when steph is on the floor is gonna be awesome i think they'll probably be a top five group when he's on the floor when he's off the floor especially when you look at some of those units that are gonna be starting the second quarter you know draymond probably will, will match his minutes with steph when steph's off the floor they'll probably be you know a bottom 10 unit i think i mean if you look at that unit that started games in Brooklyn last year with D'Angelo Russell once mm-hmm. Karis LeVert was out you know where it was just him and there was a bunch of guys who could shoot and those units you know were not really any good those were kind of 20th in the league type of units and he's gonna have less talent around him than he had in those units because at least they had some shooting there so uh and, and those units are gonna with Dray- whenever Draymond's off the floor they're gonna be awful defensively they'll probably be you know playing defense at worst worse in the league type of levels when he's off the floor so maybe steve kerr is going to be able to find some magic we're we're going to learn a lot about steve kerr as a coach this year of like can he really get a unit with above or below average defensive personnel to at least be passable uh or you know is he kind of really good coach for great talent and you know kind of average if he doesn't have that Steve Kerr and Rod Adams both, right? Yeah. Well, Ron's got enough of a reputation. He has enough of a reputation, a but now yeah. let's, you know, he's, he's, yeah. there's another challenge for him, right? Yeah. And he's, he's taking a little bit of a step back this year too, in terms of his role, kind of more of a player development type aspect. All right. Well, well so, so that's Golden State. We'll see who ends up being right uh, mm-hmm. on that one. Um, Portland, you had them with 41 wins. I had them with 46. Oh my God. They won 53 games a year ago. How the hell can you say they're going to win 41 games this year? You know, it's, it's interesting setting aside my prediction for them. Um, if you look at your prediction or Vegas or what Nate Silver has predicted for them, cause Nate actually had him at 40 wins. I want to say, right. um, they think they have an awesome team. Like if you hear the oh, quotes oh, coming out of there, like oh, yeah. they think they're really oh, good. Oh, oh, Neil O'Shea, uh, got a nice, uh, uh shot off at the projection systems like uh neil I, i'm pretty sure your analytics department does those exact same kind of projections so uh, <laughs> may, may, maybe calm down a little bit well the um the 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 thing with me with portland probably the biggest part i just don't see how they're going to be even as you talk about golden state's defense i mean at, at least golden state the defense gets weak when you get into the backups i mean portland right at the start of the game you're, you're starting lillard cj and rodney hood on the perimeter with Zach Collins and, and Hassan Whiteside. I mean, if you, if you have like a super motivated version of Hassan, I can see how that sort of works, but yeah. I just, by the second week of the season, you know, he's, he's going to be reverting back to some of the things he did in Miami. And I think, I think that's going to be a real is- issue there. Uh, the bench yeah. isn't I think very his, good. His athleticism has waned a lot too with some of these nagging injuries. He's 30, you know, people kind of forget that because he broke in so late, uh, yeah. that he really is on the downside athletically. And, uh, you know, he's, not necessarily making up for it with the skill level yeah exactly and i think i think the game keeps moving away from him too especially at the offensive end yeah um offensively like use of nurkic was good i mean he yeah. did he did a lot of subtle stuff where you could where he could short roll he could make it make a decision in those if you trapped lillard and it would and it would be good enough to make you think twice about it and obviously he was a threat going to the basket too uh he, 
you don't really trust Hassan in those situations, um, but he's not a three-point shooter either. Uh, now, yeah. he is a, a major lob threat and uh, the offensive rebound threat, obviously. Uh, but if he tries to post up a lot, I think he's just getting in the way of Lillard and CJ. So the, that part's going to be really interesting. Like I said, I, the the bench to me is a massive question mark. Uh, and I, I I wonder too, I think they're going to end up having to start Kent Bazemore just to get a more defensive identity out there at the start of games. And then you bring Hood off the bench and let him score at that second group seems more natural to me. But right now it looks like they're going to start Hood. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for what Dame and CJ are able to do offensively. I mean, that's what a lot of this is. I mean, I think even for 46 wins for me, for a lot of Blazers fans, it is still like, you know, that's, that's really low. Um, but yeah, I do have some concerns of what the two bigs together to start is going to look like from a spacing perspective. Um, but I do, I think if they get units on the floor, with Hood even at the three instead of a Mo Harkless or uh, a Alfaruk Aminu, that just having someone that defenses aren't going to leave there is going to be massive. And is Collins really that much worse of a shooter than either of those two guys, as long as they actually station him out there instead of like just having two bigs standing inside the arc all the time? Like, I, I think that'll be, I think they'll be better offensively this year than they were last year. Really? I mean, Although, they were number three in offense last year. I mean, there's a good offensive team last year. Well, yeah, were they really that? I just think, I, I had it in my head there more like like number five. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe, maybe that's uh, uh, that's being a little bit too rosy. I haven't projected as number five. So okay. Um, yeah, I, I mean, and I guess maybe I was more thinking about what they were in the playoffs too. Sure. Without Nurkic yeah. and yeah, and, you know, I, I'm not counting on them getting a ton from him. They're talking about him coming back in like February, and who knows what he's going to look like at that point. But I do think they have that more more shooting on the wings which would be nice but yeah and then defensively um yeah they lost the wing defenders there are some pretty good wings still in the west that's a a major problem but i also am very curious to see number one you know terry stats system they've always been able to cobble together reasonable defenses except for you know about a half year period before they traded Plumley by just really working the math and forcing teams to shoot in the mid-range and it's just there's only so efficient you can be just controlling the paint not forcing any turnovers you know they're not, you're not gonna have a great defense that way but maybe you can get by to pass well and also just going with like two bigs who can actually block shots like you know we haven't seen those type of alignments very often we're seeing more of them this year than we have in the last few years but is that going to make enough of a difference to make up for the fact that they are smaller on the perimeter uh i don't know the answer how's, to that question. how's zach collins going to block shots 25 feet from the basket that's what i want to know yeah. like aren't, aren't you going to try to pull him out on every single play 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 four out and make him a fourth perimeter defender um yeah I, I think so but those guys are still able to get in there at times and rebound and block shots yeah i mean you're it's going to reduce his effectiveness some to be sure but it, i mean i think the research is generally showing you correct me if i'm wrong here that generally playing with two bigs i mean the spurs have played with two bigs for a long time right and they've generally other than last year have kind of punched above their weight defensively in part because of that and just dealt with the consequences on the offensive end so i'm interested to see if there's a similar effect here or not it could well be that what, what you're saying is correct i, I totally acknowledge that. i mean i, I I think I think you know Collins is a big swing guy here because I think one of the questions are they playing with two bigs or are they playing with two fives right yeah, I think those yeah. are two very different questions and uh, you know we'll we'll see what uh, what Collins can do certainly. I think matched up against Paul Millsap last year in that second round. I think that was favorable for him, but I think there are guys who shoot it well enough that it'll be a real problem for him on that end. Yeah. And we'll see whether he plays some five as well. I still think that's his best position. He's got to actually yeah. like stay on the floor too and not commit like four fouls every 20 minutes well that's the other factor if he's if he's having to chase more and play quicker guys is he going to foul even more 
Yeah. Also, I think uh, their offensive rebounding is probably be really good. Like that's uh, it usually is for them. It's been an underrated part of their success and Denver's success for that matter. But I think that like if they're going to play those two guys together, uh, they should be able to really kill on the offensive glass. So both those guys are really good offensive rebounders. But we'll see. I mean, I definitely project them to take a step back. Uh, I just I have a little bit too much respect for Damon CJ uh, to say like. Uh, 41 and 41 but i'm kind of taking the opposite tack here than i was with golden state i suppose i'm not not being entirely consistent but uh yeah we'll see also the other thing too i think portland might be the most likely team to use a first round pick in a trade to try and now get that i agree with you on and they um they they are in position i think i wrote this up on the athletic um uh, maybe a week or two ago that they're in a great position relative to other teams in the West. It's the, them and the Nuggets as far as a star player being available and having the assets to put in a deal. When you have that huge white side expiring, you have a couple of kids who are interesting for other teams. When you look at Collins, you look at Simons, you look at even, even Gary Trent, they have all their future first round picks. So they're in a, they're in a position to put a deal together. However, I think the underestimated threat is that things could swing the other way on them too. Their early season schedule is very difficult. They are $12 million into the luxury tax. Right now they have the green light to spend, it seems like. But what happens if they're 13 and 19, 32 games into the season and they're looking at a, at a pretty large luxury tax bill? They have the highest payroll in the league right now. Is the owner going to cut the court at that point and make them go the opposite direction and say, you know, you have yeah. to trade Kent Bazemore or something just to get us under the tax line? Yeah, well, and and there's not a lot of ways to do that because unlike in past years, we're not going into this season where there are teams that just, you know, like Sacramento last year just are sitting around with 12 million in cap space. But but also, I think just because of the narrative of, oh, my God, we got to the West Finals, we just extended Dame, we just extended CJ, we just extended Neil O'Shea, we've got uh, all this great talent, we're we're really, you know, we're going to take the next step this year, we're not going to fall backwards. And also this history that they have of playing so much better in the second half after some rough starts Mm -hmm. i think they probably just double down uh, with this group at least for this year and then if it really doesn't work maybe there's a reevaluation this summer but it's difficult for me to see them punting entirely i think they definitely chase the eighth seed because it would just be such a pr disaster and uh we know that neil uh neil likes his pr uh to just be totally out of the playoffs and not only that but just to give up uh at in, in february you know as opposed to hey we just fought all the way and it would definitely feel like giving up if they made that deal and they'd have some unhappy veterans i do agree with that okay sacramento what did you have them for 31 wins i had them with 30 30 so 39 and 43 a year ago pretty similar point differential to that i have them with 42 wins this might be our biggest difference okay on on the board here uh i I appreciate you only putting a little bit of skepticism into that okay (laughs) Uh, when you when you heard me say that but my thinking was i mean this may be too reductive was they won 39 a year ago i didn't see anything incredibly fluky about what they did Mm -hmm. their their young guys are going to get better they got a lot of guys who you know, you, you may feel they're overpaid. I might agree, but they're NBA rotation players who fixed some of the holes that they had, including backup point guard. They got uh, some good bets who, who can play defense that fit pretty well with what they're doing. Uh, so if they're 39 a year ago, everything points to them being better. Why are they going to be nine wins worse instead? Well, they might have an actual injury this year for one. Yeah. I mean, they, you go through, you go through the games played last year. It's ridiculous. I mean, Buddy Heald, 82, De'Aaron Fox, 81, Cauley Stein, 81, Belitsa, 77. Uh, Bogdanovich was out for a little bit. He only played 70. Uh, but you know, those are their best players. I mean, 
the the one guy who was out was Bagley, and honestly, that might have helped them, uh, right? The way he played in the beginning of the year. Um, yeah. So he's he's a concern for me. Like, is he actually good? Does he really contribute to winning basketball? That he seems penciled in for thirty minutes a night. So that that's kind of maybe where this could go wrong for me. Yeah, I, I think there's there was always this question, even when we were scouting him in the draft, is he going to be an empty calories guy? Who, who you know who gets twenty tens but gives up so much defensively that he's yeah. that he's kind of Greg Monroe ish, or is he? Not that he's the same type of player because he's much more of a fast twitch athletic guy. Or is he going to be able to develop a three point shot, develop the ability to guard in space and, and become really a plus asset? And, you know, last year, I think still left a lot of question marks on that front. Now he's still incredibly young. Um, and his speed, I think that's the one thing that I think when they, they, when they were good it was when they could play fast. And yeah. so Bagley is able to play fast and he might be able to replace some of what Collie Stein gave him on that front. Because I mean, one of the things that they did really well was that Collie Stein was so fast in transition that when he beats your center down the court, now you're scrambling over and having a guard has to pick him up in transition. And that's how Buddy Hield was getting all those transition threes, or a lot of them, was because his guy was sinking back to take away the dunk. So now you're giving away the open three instead. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Luke Walton is going to make sure that they play as fast as they did last year under Dave Yeager. That must have been hilarious to you, by the way, to see Dave Yeager uh, screaming himself hoarse from telling them to run last year. Uh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit of a, a system shock, certainly after after the way we played <laughs> under him in uh, in yeah. Memphis. But uh, although, although I, in fairness, that was your personnel at the time. Exactly. Uh, no, I, I I do think he was um, he, he was agnostic about that. He just felt like that was how the talent had to play. He, he wasn't. He he was. Um, the, the the area where he was probably less sort of inclined to change was was opening up with the three point shooting, which he actually did some in Sacramento last year too. Yeah. Uh but in terms in terms of pace of play, because you remember like he came out of the the CBA and, and the D League, like there were some real Wild West kind of games going on there. So he's not unfamiliar with that style. Yeah. Uh, so also, I think you might be lower on Dwayne Dedman than me. I actually really liked Dedman. I, I had him as, uh, you know, kind of in the low teens when I did my center rankings last year because someone who can shoot, who can roll to the rim and can play passable defense, block some shots, like that level of versatility is good. I like his fit with Bagley. Um, and so I think having that ability to stretch the floor in particular, you know, assuming his shooting the last couple of years with the Hawks was real, which I think it probably is. Um, I like that fit. You know, you kind of, I think the way you termed it was they signed a bunch of backups to like close to starter money. And I don't feel that way about Devin. I agree with you on Arisa, who I don't really see how he fits in and Corey Joseph, but you know, what else were they using the money for? They, they filled their biggest needs so and they didn't go more than two years on, on these contracts guaranteed one in the case of Arisa. So I actually didn't mind those signings because I kind of, I didn't think there was a huge opportunity cost for them. Wouldn't you have preferred they had done the Aguadala trade? Well, yeah, I mean, to some degree, but like not everyone could do the Iguodala trade. Like the the reason they got that such a good deal, Memphis, was because there is no one else out there to do it, right? I, I like if there were more teams out there to do it, then the deal doesn't become as good. Yeah, well, that 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 is a fair point. But one of the reasons Sacramento wasn't there to do it was because they paid Corey Joseph and Trevor Ariza when they, you know, like, are you really that much worse if you do a minimum with Raul Neto? Like, well, yeah, I, don't I mean, know. I think. 
Rashawn Holmes and Ariza, maybe I could have done with. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. The, those are the ones maybe that I look at. The Holmes was the room exception. So I got not a ton of opportunity cost there. And they're not going to have cap space very likely next summer. Um, all right. That, that was fun. Let's take another quick break here. And we're going to do our mailbag, Twitter mailbag. Thanks to everyone who submitted questions there. And then uh, we got to come up with a good segment for this John story time. Uh, really get into some of his experience with the Grizzlies. We're already looping that in, obviously. But uh, specific questions that I, I have this whole list of questions that I want to ask him uh, that we talked about on the trailer. So we'll be back in a sec here. All right. You want to hit some of these questions? Uh, anything uh, of particular interest to you here? From Doc O'Carter. What are your opinions on the mid-range shot? I saw the back and forth with KD on Twitter, and he made some great points. According to analytics, it's not the best shot, but if you're good at mid-rangers, then that's a great shot. So this, to me, is a really interesting topic, and it gets into the debate that everyone got into with Zach Levine this week as well. And the issue is that most of the guys who are good at mid-range shooting— are also good at three-point shooting and therefore are leaving money on the table by taking a two-point shot when they could be taking a three-point shot. You see this so much with James Harden where he beats somebody, but then he quickly steps behind the line to get the extra point out of it. Uh, you see other players doing that too. Rather than shot fake and step forward into a two, they're stepping sideways into a three. And if they can't get that, they're trying to get all the way to the rim and not shoot that 30 to 40% shot from the range. Now, there's no question that being able to convert from the mid-range is valuable because sometimes that is the only shot available. If the defense does their job well enough, you're going to end up with a mid-range shot. And sometimes, especially for the best players in mismatch situations, they can convert that two at a high enough clip. I'm thinking about Kawhi Leonard in the playoffs here, for instance, that you're essentially forced to double them even though they're taking what is theoretically a bad shot. If you don't have the right defender on them, they can get into that shot so easily and shoot it at enough of a percentage that it still really puts you at a disadvantage. So I see that element to it, but there are still a lot of players who are essentially who essentially don't see it at that level and so are taking twos that didn't need to be taken because they could have been threes or they could have been rim shots pretty easily. Yeah, I'll echo that. And I think what I can add to Seth Partnow has written a lot about this, your colleague at The Athletic, that we've kind of gotten rid of the most inefficient mid-rangers because it used to be that guys would spot up for mid-rangers. And number one, that was only worth two points instead of three at a pretty similar percentage. And number two, those guys were standing way close to everything else and mucking up the spacing for everyone else. So just to even get that spot up mid-range two was screwing everything up uh, for your teammates. Now, uh, the biggest changes that we've seen is that guys who are spotting up, who are finishing plays, those guys are outside the arc. And so that's that's been the biggest change that I think a lot of people are missing. Whereas, of course, you know, a lot of the analysts who do talk about this are stars. A lot of the stars drive the conversation. And so they're like, I, I'm really good at creating my own mid-rangers. Like, that has a place. And as you talked about, I think it really does. Uh, but it's really for the role players that you shouldn't be taking any mid-rangers at all, basically, because you're compromising the spacing and you, the payoff isn't really worth it in any event. But for on-ball guys, you know, I think it depends on who it is, right? Like for DeMar DeRozan, he's never really shown the ability to shoot the three-pointer for whatever reason. Maybe he hasn't worked on it, but he's not effective out there. So his, and most of the teams he's on, they need him to create some offense, especially in the clock. So the mid-ranger is not too bad for him. You probably also maybe got a little bit better a chance of getting fouled if you get inside the arc or shoot 
shoot a floater or something. Uh, although, as you and I have talked about back when you were working for the Grizzlies, that three-shot fa- foul is just a ridiculously high payoff. But for Levine, he gets that three-pointer off so easily. He shot 37% last year on some pretty difficult attempts. I think if he took his mid-rangers and made them threes, I don't think his attempts would be much more difficult than the threes he's already taken. And apparently, the coaching staff talked to him about this, and he doesn't like it. But that's one where you're good at shooting threes. So shoot more if you can get them. You don't have to take as many twos where he's kind of settling for more of those. And the hope too is, you know, he was their only creator. They didn't have much spacing last year. Now he can kind of get that shoot the three or get to the rim dichotomy a little more because they will have some spacing around him. Well, yeah. I mean, it's crazy that we're having this discussion regarding him because for his career, he shoots threes better than mid-range twos, like even setting aside the extra point. Um, It's also crazy that we're talking about him because the one time that a mid-range shot is just as valuable as a three and you really don't mind is at the end of a one-point game when last year he waved off his coach and decided to shoot a step-back three in that (laughs) exact situation. Um, The the other thing, as you point out with him, now that there's a lot more floor spacing on that Chicago team, who I think is going to be a lot better this year when you talk about having Otto Porter, Sadoransky, Markinen, Wendell, Wendell Carter, is that instead of pulling up from mid-range, he can put pressure on the rim and draw and kick and generate a three-point shot for somebody else which is the other thing that you see a guy like James Harden do when he gets that half step. The thing that immediately clicks in his head is even if I can't get a dunk or a three, I can get it for somebody else just by taking that extra dribble to the basket. Zach Barnes asks, got your protractor ready? Uh, I, You know, I was always more of a compass guy, really. I figured, you know, if there's an apocalypse or something, a lot more useful, really defend yourself. I, You see, I'm a little miffed that he didn't ask about our uh, pocket squares like Reggie Miller did. <laughs> pocket protectors, right? No, he meant pocket protectors, I'm sure, but he said pocket squares. <laughs> All right, here, here's a, a real question. Uh, Daniel Ravid, I think uh, I'm going to either Ravid or Ravid, uh, does a team need to have good passers to have good ball movement? And, and it was the Clippers that were the inspiration for that. What do you think? Well, I think we're, we're confusing the means with the end, right? The end game is to have a good offense, not to have good ball movement. And I think we become so, uh, religious, uh, about, about the, the idea of, of ball movement being good and not ball movement being bad that we're forgetting that if you have good one-on-one scorers, often your best move is to not pass the ball at all and just let them go. I mean, that's one of the things that Houston has really mastered is that they actually don't throw a lot of passes. They just have one brilliant guy who has the ball in his hand, hands the whole time. And then he makes the decision for everyone else and they just have to catch and fire basically. So I, I don't necessarily think it's, it's contingent on having a bunch of great individual passers to have a good, a good offense, especially when you have the one on one talent that that Clipper team has. I, I don't think it's going to look like the Spurs beautiful game team from, from six years ago though. Like that, that's just not how they're going to play. There is going to be a lot of one on one with this Clippers team. Yeah, I think that good passing is most important when you don't necessarily have that player. That's what lets you punch uh, above your weight. And that's what made those Golden State teams, obviously, so ridiculous was you had to guard all of their really difficult system stuff. Even if you were switching, they had counters to that. Uh, They had really good spacing with their best lines. And then, okay, you switch, you stay in front of them, you're not getting an open shot through the action uh, and the gravity and all the running around. All right, well, we'll just, uh, you know, run a pick and roll with Steph Curry and Draymond Green or, or Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. And you're, you're not going to be able to stop that either. And even Steve Kerr, who is, you know, maybe one of the biggest 
uh, proponents of ball movement has said, hey, you know, when you really get into the playoffs, when you're being scouted, sometimes you really have to just rely uh, on your individual creators. So for a team like the Clippers, yeah, I don't think it matters that much. For a, a team like, uh, you know, Orlando or something like that, where you don't have those great individual creators, then I think it matters more. You got to get the defense going from side to side. You have to give, I, I think part of it to me, why I like ball movement so much is every possession, you should give the defense a chance to make a mistake. And, you know, even if you can get four backdoor cuts a game or something like that, you know, that's the difference between a terrible offense and a decent offense, you know, so you want to at least give yourself the option to, for the defense to screw up before you go into your, okay, save us Kawhi type of thing that's true but one of the things we found uh, i think having a, a team in memphis that was let's say rarely in the top half of the league in offensive efficiency is that sometimes there's a cost to that in terms of having too many secondary people handling the ball too often yeah turn when, it over when more. you take the ball out of your best players hands and that can lead to mistakes too so there's a little bit of a yin and a yang with that which is i mean it's one of the things that makes basketball so so wonderful is that you have to maximize the system for the talent you have and it's different everywhere and it's different every night almost depending on who's available all right where do you want to go next sir should we address the elephant in the room here with uh gasterman where's that oh yeah we can tackle that okay what does john so- think about per now versus back when it was conceived it's a very widely used catch-all among fans is that good or bad well, I, for one, think it's wonderful that it's a widely used catch-all amongst fans. <laughs> well, what's the ar- what's the argument here? No, seriously, I having having a single uh, index, I think, is really helpful in a in a sport like basketball where you don't have. Um, where, where you don't have some of the stats like baseball, like baseball always had batting average ERA, uh, slugging percentage on base, where, where you were really able to compare apples to apples among players and basketball never had that. And that was one of the reasons I created PER in the first place. And so still having that available, I think is really helpful. Uh, obviously there, are, there are blind spots to PER just because of what was available at the time and what's still not available. I mean, defense is still a little bit of a black box even now. And, but it does make good use of of what is available and i think the scale of it is pretty easy to understand when you say somebody has a pr of 20 versus a pr of 15 there's um there's enough of a standard there that you at least know and know in your head what that might signify i always liked it because yeah i mean it definitely was the state of the art i think at the time also adjusted for pace which wasn't being done back then um but I, I think it's useful in that you just have to understand what it's measuring. It's measuring rather than just saying, okay, this guy averages 23 points and 15 rebounds and three assists. You can kind of put all of that together. I think it reliably summarizes the contributions of the box score. And that's like a good starting point. There are many things that the box score doesn't measure. And as long as we know what those are, it can still be useful. So, I mean, certainly if a guy has over a 25 PR, you're gonna have to have a pretty good argument of why this guy isn't good. Uh, and those non-box score factors yeah. to say that that's uh, absolutely the, the one thing in- that's, you know? that's happened in the 20 years since I created this is that the scale has gotten a little out of whack for the bigs versus the uh, wing yeah. players. Um, just because of, of the way the game has changed a little bit. And so that, that, that's, that's probably the one element that you, you have to consider it a little more in light of what a guy's position is, uh, the, and his in, impact on spacing offensively, uh, than maybe you used to. All right. Let's do one more here. 
Sam Bart, as a Knicks fan, is there anything I can look forward to, like seriously, anything at all? Woo. Um, I mean, there's always the free agent hype for the next year when you're the Knicks, right? Well, yeah, t- 2021 plan. And literally every good visiting player that comes to town for the Knicks this year is asked about joining the Knicks in free agency, right? And so uh, yeah. th- there's there's always that, uh, but but they're not going to actually come. So I, I think you got to say, I mean, R.J. Barrett is their best chance at having a real uh, centerpiece superstar on this team since they drafted Porzingis, right? So that, that has to to be where you start and what can he be you know watching him develop this year he's obviously going to have the ball in his hands a ton uh is he you know which direction is he going to go in terms of you know developing some of his ability to be a distributor or is he just going to have those moments like he had at duke last year where he's just kind of putting his head down and being more of a pig and that that's going to be a real question that i want to know the answer to if I'm a Knicks fan. And look, there's some other interesting young players this year. I mean, Braz Dacus was good in summer league. You know, they've, they've Mitchell Robinson certainly is a talented shot blocker is, you know, kind of wild and undisciplined as he is. I mean, he definitely shown ability. Uh, there's, there are some things there. I thought the Alfred Payton signing was actually a nice move. So, you know, I, oh, can, yeah. you, I can, you and I disagree on him. I, you noted that you thought he made progress last year in New Orleans. I can't say once AD wasn't playing that I watched them incredibly closely. What did you see from him last year? He had a triple-double. Come on, man. <laughs> he uh, And with that haircut now, he can actually see the rim. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's uh, maybe that was really really holding him. No, back. no, I, uh, I, uh, you know, I don't want to get too carried away. I just, I just thought there was a little bit more of a a solidness to him that I hadn't seen in Orlando. And it's it's tough. You're right because I mean, some of these games in in March are such garbage that it's tough to 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 take too much of an uh, of an evaluation, take it too seriously. Yeah, especially when you don't watch them like I do. <laughs> well, yeah, you, yeah, you were probably better off for that too, but. Uh, I, I I just thought there was something a little bit more 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 solid, more composed there than I had seen. Back to the Knicks. I wasn't too high on RJ. I don't think he's quite that athletic. I don't think his shooting is going to come around. I think there's a ceiling on him because of those two things. I do like his passing. I do like his rebounding. But I think that they are putting him in the exact wrong place to try and succeed with this group that they put around. You mean on the next score? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, uh, with the personnel around it too. I mean, that, that, that's really a concern that they don't have a ton of spacing. They got a lot of other, uh, pigs as you well. I mean, he'd almost be better off with Luke Cornett than with Julius Randall, right? Yeah, maybe so. I I mean, mean, just just have like a stretch stretch guy around him that can, you know, cause he's, that floor is going to be so tight in New York next year. I don't mean to yeah. imply in any way, shape, or form that Cornette is better than Randall, but I'm just saying situationally for what for what Barrett is facing, you'd almost rather have more stretching, or you definitely, I think, would rather have more stretchiness and that capability uh, in half-court situations. And, and you're not going to have it with Randall there and with point guards, whether it's Peyton or, I know I just talked up Alfred Peyton, but I, I still think you're leaving him pretty willingly to uh to guard other players so uh between him and smith there's not really that deep threat so uh, just a lot of questions about how that team is built i agree with you let's uh let's do this segment here we would love some suggestions uh for this segment where i asked john uh some specific questions that i had uh, about uh how things work in front offices i suggested uh holly's follies that was roundly shouted down so uh if you guys could do better than that, we'll come up with a name for this segment. But for now, I'll just ask you the question. 
uh, this time of year, you're making your end of roster decisions, trying to decide who to cut. You probably got some guaranteed guys, some non-guaranteed guys. How does that decision get made? Who has input? How much input does the coaching staff has? Uh, uh, I'll just wind you up here. Uh, tell me what that process is like this time of year. What it's factors going it's a really interesting process because it, it can go a couple different ways. Okay, so let's say you're in a situation where you have fewer than than the maximum number of guys guaranteed, and you just invite a few guys to camp thinking you'll cut them. Inevitably, one of them is going to make an impression on the coaches, and they're going to want to keep them. That That is 100% guaranteed to happen. So you're always going to have that situation if you don't have 15 guarantees. Um you also can end up in situations where even if you have those guarantees, there's a guy the coach just isn't feeling and he he sort of sees some other guy there as a way to get that guy out almost. <laughs> um, and so that 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 and that's just just a reality of it. And, that, and that's something uh, that that you have to deal with, too. Then there's the other situation which Memphis is facing this year and which we faced a couple years ago where you have more than 15 guarantees and really have to sit down and make a and make a decision. And what's interesting from the coaches perspective, you know, they have a they have a small sample and a small view into this, but there's an element of this that they can really control in terms of how they distribute minutes in the preseason games, how they distribute assignments uh, in terms of first team, second team, third team, and practices. Uh, so they're able to to load the dice to a certain extent. It uh it and it just and it just comes down. I mean, it's it's a it's a real you know every team deals with this a little differently. Uh, but it but it it comes down to to a lot of times just to some really squishy criteria because you're generally dealing with guys who are not established stars in the league, right? When you're talking about your 14th, 15th roster spot, and these are decisions that could could basically go either way most of the time. It seems like this decision coaches would really have more of an impact on it than you know, a free agent signing in the off season. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I would, especially when you when you get into roster battles uh with with fringe players, a lot of times it's it's easier to make the call in the coach's direction because you know that's the guy he's actually gonna trust in a game and play. So unless yep. you have some overriding reason not to go that way uh, that that's where the momentum is going to go. By the time I was done in Memphis, the thing I'd really come to believe is that just have 15 guarantees. Just go in before one ball is thrown up. Just got to tell the coach, these are the 15 guys and that's just what it's going to be. And and go in like that. And then you don't have to deal with anything in the preseason. If he likes a guy, I'm sorry. We can maybe keep him on two-way or something, but that's that's just what it is. And I think, I think that that gets rid of a lot of potential situations and eliminates the possibility for a lot of things that even though they're low-level moves, you still might end up regretting. Yeah, and this guy is six of fifteen from three in four preseason games. Oh, small sample, three point shooting. You know? Yeah, that's that's a favorite of mine. So uh, that touches on on another aspect of this, which is let's say you've got a guy who's guaranteed. You know, let's say maybe he was last year's second round pick that you took forty second overall. You gave him a two year guaranteed deal. I guess you. you ran into this uh with Roddy Zagorich I actually uh 
who I think you guys cut. We, yeah, so we, in, yeah, right? we really painted ourselves into a corner that year because we had yeah. we had seventeen guarantees. We got down to sixteen, but we had Mario Chalmers on a camp deal too. And you know, in retrospect, you you don't sign a veteran to a camp deal like that if you have too many guarantees already because there's it's yeah. just too hard once the momentum starts for the guy to to stop that train and so that that forced our hand too we end up we ended up cutting uh rade and uh and wade baldwin that year um i I do give chris wallace credit it took some pretty big stones to cut a first round draft pick the year after he had been picked and i think it was probably the right move i think the evidence has shown that um so it was it was unfortunate but i also think we forced our own hand when we when we signed Chalmers is that par- partial, right? And he ended up not having a great year for us. We we didn't need to do that. Yeah. So, I mean, was that difficult with ownership to be like, hey, you know, we got this guy who's partially guaranteed, non-guaranteed. We want to keep him. Uh, you're, guess what? Like, just because we cut these guys that are guaranteed, you're still going to have to pay him. Now that's two million bucks in cash, three million bucks in cash that you got to spend for guys who aren't on the team. How hard is that conversation to have with ownership? Well, I, I think it varies by the team and by the owner. Um, and, and I will say Chris had that conversation, not me. So maybe I'm, yeah. you know, uh, maybe I'm downplaying a little bit, but, uh, for, for whatever reason that, that conversation wasn't that hard because we had at least outlined what some of the possibilities might be before we got into camp. So it wasn't yeah. like something that we sprung on everybody right before Halloween. Um, so so in, internally, we knew what some of the possibilities were. Yeah, I mean, I remember even back when I was a lawyer and I had clients and you might have a negative outcome. The advice always was, hey, just make sure when you start off, they're prepared for this. It's not going to like come out of nowhere of like oh wait really seriously like i gotta pay three million dollars more that i wasn't planning on all of a sudden and i gotta decide by tomorrow you know like that's that's yeah. the situation you don't want to be in i i do think that there are some teams again this depends on ownership dallas did this a few years ago where they basically just like i think they guaranteed maybe like 18 or 19 guys you know, they're in a situation where they used all their cap space they weren't close to the tax so they're just like hey you know what like Let's get the best possible guys in in camp that we like. We, if we got a guarantee yep. of money, that's yep. fine. We just we cut them. It costs us money, but that's fine. You know, we 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 got the best fifteen guys that we could. But th- that's not realistic for every team. It seems like. Yeah, I mean, just the, the cap implications of that for starters aren't aren't workable for most teams in most situations. And then telling your telling your owner ahead of time, we are definitely going to eat three million dollars right here. I, I think that's a tough tough conversation too. But they were in a situation that, yeah, I remember that. And, uh, they ended up cutting a couple guys with guarantees, if I remember right. Um, Houston has done that too, uh, where, where they cut Reggie Williams with either a half or a full guarantee and, and one other guy that year, uh, three or four years ago. Slightly different ownership in Houston at that time. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure we'd see them doing that move today, but that, you know, that, that isn't necessarily the worst way to do it if everyone knows what the score is coming in. I, I think in, in any of these situations, like, like you talked about, there's a lot of just, just managing expectations and, and having conversations and making sure everyone understands what is happening ahead of time. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. We're actually going to do what might be my favorite segment, which is where, uh, John actually has to end the show in a cogent and concise way. Uh, so, so please, uh, Take it away here, here, John. T- tell every, everyone they, they need to know and everything they need to do uh, before we get going here. 
Well, thank. first of all, thank you everyone for listening to our Maiden episode. I hope we entertained you. And you can find us uh, wherever you find podcasts online, whether that's uh, iTunes or Spotify or wherever else you, you, you can find us. Uh, and on the Locked On Network as well. And I'm sure I left out three or four other alternatives that Nate will tell you all about. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, please share on social media uh, as well. It's uh, definitely really important as we're trying to get a podcast off the ground and give us a rating or review on iTunes. Uh, that's always appreciated as well. And uh, we'll be back. Uh, usually Sunday nights is going to be our time for recording. And th- that was pretty good, by the way, John. I-, I still actually suck at that, like after four and a half years of, of podcasting. <laughs> and uh, if you listen to some of my uh, outros, it was uh, it was pretty ugly in the beginning. So, all right. Thanks again for listening. And we'll be back next week. Till then. How's that? Okay, that's good. Here, to talk about how uh, Virginia is the greatest team ever, real quick. Virginia is the greatest team ever, Nate. And you you really need to understand that. And I, I don't get why you would go to Tulane instead of G- Virginia. G- yeah, thank you. <laughs> give me uh, give me like another uh, another turn down. Where where are you at in terms of like o'clock on your? Uh, uh, nine o'clock or yeah. three o'clock, depending on how you look at it. Yeah, nine o'clock, like t- pointing towards the left there. Yeah, so give me give me like eight thirty. Okay, how's that? All right, I, th- I think that'll be good. I'll, I'll maybe I'll just you know if you could just be totally dispassionate for the rest of the show. Actually, that would be a, <laughs> that'll that, be great entertainment. I'm sure. At Bet three six five, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.